The Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last week we entered into Daniel 4 as we've been studying on Wednesday nights through the book of Daniel. And of course, we'll, we'll do a little review, just kind of make sure we're all on the same page of, of uh, where we left off from last week. But we've already studied Daniel chapter 1, kind of an, a, the introduction, kind of the background of all that has taken place. It details how the fact that uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came into, uh, into, into Judah and, and took all the uh, people there captive. Well, not all of them, the, many of the ones that were the most talented, the wisest, and the most fit for, uh, for use, of course. They took them back to Babylon. Uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have been part of that crew, that crew that had been taken to, to Babylon. They left the remnant there in, uh, uh, in Israel to uh, take care of things and just to be left there, although they were under the reign of Babylon. And uh, of course, uh, we studied through uh, chapter number two and, this, and this, the vision of the statue, uh, beginning with the head of gold. And we discovered, of course, that is detailing the beginning of uh, a, a series of kingdoms that would rule the world, uh, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon being the first of that age of the Gentile. And of course, then we went into chapter number three and we were introduced to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, three of Daniel's friends. And uh, they were told that if they did not bow to the golden image or that golden statue, that Nebuchadnezzar had erected when the music played or the call to worship was, was given, uh, that they would be thrown into the fiery furnace. And of course, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when the music played, they didn't bend, they didn't bow uh, because of the fact that they weren't to bow or, or to worship anything but their God. And so therefore, Nebuchadnezzar said, if you don't bend, if you don't bow, then you're going to burn. And uh, so he, he, gathered, he got his men to gather them together, threw them in the, into the fiery furnace. Uh, of course, uh, God did a miraculous event there and the fact that they were not harmed at all. The only thing that was burned off were the shackles or the ropes that kept them bound. And of course, when Nebuchadnezzar looked in, he saw not only the three men, but a fourth man, unto the, unlike unto the Son of God. And of course, he praised the Lord for that. He made a decree even that no one should make a, uh, any type of uh, accusation or, or, or speak any words against the God of Daniel and these three men and such. And now we've come to chapter number four. And as we studied last week, uh, it starts off with Nebuchadnezzar uh, saying, I'm making this statement to the entire world. And we said it kind of seemed like he was kind of boastful there. Like, what makes him think that his decrees or his words are going to reach the whole entire world of that day? There was no Twitter. There was no Facebook. There was no internet. None of those things that we have today. No satellite television. So how in the world was he expecting that to take place? And we might think he was kind of prideful or boastful. But honestly, I believe he was just speaking after the fact that he had been uh, already told that God had placed him in this place of power and that God Almighty had given th him this authority that he had. And now we are even reading his words thousands of years later. And therefore, it wasn't so presumptuous after all for him to state what he stated. But he goes on and he praises God. He praises God and says that it was good for the events that he's about to tell us about to take place. Now, then it transitions into him telling us about the events. We learned last week about the dream that he had. And the Bible tells us that in verse number 4 of chapter 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace, and I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts upon my, upon my bed and the vision of my head troubled me. And so he had this dream that troubled him, and he was concerned with the meaning of it. And of course, we read that he goes and he gets his wise men to try to give him some instruction. The wise men, just like in chapter number two, did not have any answer, kind of seemingly useless men. I hope they didn't get paid very much. Uh, but nevertheless, they couldn't give him an answer. And so finally, the Bible says that Daniel was able to come along, and he gives the dream to Daniel. Daniel then hears the dream and is about to give the interpretation. That's where we'll pick up tonight in verse number 19. But before we get there, I want to remind you again also that Daniel chapter number 2 through chapter number 7 is structured in a, in a, in a way of writing or in a literary format that is called a chiasm. We would write in what we call an outline 
today. Uh, in those days, in, uh, in many of the Middle Eastern countries, they would write in what would be considered a chiasm. And so, again, just for the sake of remembrance, and maybe for those that are new, uh, let's see that slide there, Brother Robert, that has the chiasm. It is established in A, B, C, C prime, B prime, A prime. It makes its way into the point like kind of hits it from both sides and then makes its way back out. So A, of course, in chapter number two, speaking of, uh, concerning the four Gentile uh, kingdoms that would rule over the world, Cha uh, chapter number three is B in the, in the chiasm, and that is where God delivers Daniel's friends uh, from Gentile persecution. Chapter number four is where we're at tonight in C in that chiasm, and uh, that, of course, is God humbling the Gentile king or the one that is in charge to show that he is sovereign and still in control. Then C prime, we've not made it there yet, but we will eventually get, of course, to chapter number five, where God deposes the Gentile king uh, to demonstrate his sovereignty, matching what is happening in chapter four. Although it's a different story, it has the same point, and that is the ultimate point of this entire book, and that is God's in control. God is sovereign, and uh, that he rules over everything, even when a Gentile heathen, wicked king is technically in control on earth, God is still in control overall. Then B prime backs its way out, matching with B in, or chapter number three uh, in chapter six, and that is where God delivers Daniel now from this Gentile persecution. Chapter three, it was his friends that were delivered. Now Daniel's delivered. Then chapter number seven is C prime, matching with chapter two, or, or I'm sorry, A prime, matching with chapter number two, which was A in our chiasm uh, concerning the four Gentile empires again. And uh, we said, of course, uh, that this own chapter of chapter number four is set up almost in its own mini chiasm as well, in an A, B, B prime, A structure. I have that uh, for you as well on the screen for you to kind of follow along and see how it, how it moves through there. And of course, A, it begins with uh, the king praising the God of heaven. Then it moves into B, where the, the account of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. B prime is the events, the interpretation, and the fulfillment of that dream. And then it ends with A prime, where the king again is giving praise to God. And if you'll go to the end of the chapter, you'll be very quick to no notice how it matches very much like the beginning of the chapter as well. But anyways, we've started already in the chapter number four. We've, we've read the dream. We've already read what Nebuchadnezzar gave to Daniel and said, here was my dream, and uh, here's all the events that took place in my dream. And now we're tonight going to get into the part where Daniel begins to interpret it. We won't get to the fulfillment of it yet tonight. All right, I'm just going to be completely... Up front, we're not going to get very far, honestly, this evening, uh, as there's much to cover even in this small segment of chapter 4, verses 19 through 27. So this message is actually going to be two-part. I know everything has kind of been building upon itself, but we're only actually going to cover one point of this particular message tonight. And the message title is this, God is God and we are not. God is God. And we are not. Now, last week we learned that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn some things the hard way, right? And uh, so we're, we, we don't want to learn that way. We don't want to have to learn that God is God and we are not, like Nebuchadnezzar is having to learn the hard way. But nevertheless, we all need to come to this conclusion and learn this lesson tonight that God is God and we are not. Number one, notice with me tonight the terrible hereafter. As we jump into verse number 19, we find now Daniel begins to give the interpretation. And he's heard the dream that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has given. He's heard the events that were detailed in this dream. And now Daniel's about to give uh, Nebuchadnezzar the instructions on what's coming after this. Hereafter, this interpretation, these things are going to come to pass. And this isn't good news for Nebuchadnezzar. This is not a, a bed of, or flower, flowery roses for him to just kind of say, Woo, look at me. God's been so good. He's given me all this power. And I'm going to have just a wonderful time through the end of my reign. He's going to find himself in some deep, deep waters, if you may. 
And as we read in verse number 19, read with me. It says, Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was, an, uh, uh, was astonished. Uh, 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 I'm sorry, let's see. Verse number 9. Was a stone for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. And the king spake and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. And we find the interpretation has an edge to it. We find here that Daniel is told the, the interpretation, and honestly, the king is not, uh, is not surprised in the slightest at Daniel's response or his reaction. We're kind of getting the sense as we've studied so far that everyone involved in this situation kind of knew from the onset that things aren't going to turn out so well for Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, we said that Nebuchadnezzar had the dream, and we kind of wondered if, if Daniel was the one who was so quick to be able to get the answer for the dream in chapter number two, why didn't he go immediately to Daniel and ask for the interpretation from Daniel? And one conclusion we put out there was maybe, just maybe, that Nebuchadnezzar the king had an idea already what this dream meant. Then when he went and asked the, the, the wise men and the astrologers and all those men that couldn't answer him back in chapter number two and ultimately weren't able to answer him here in chapter number four also, he was hoping maybe to get a second opinion. Maybe to, if he had in his mind, this doesn't, isn't going to end well for me, but just in case I'm wrong, let me see if I can get these guys to tell me something different. And of course, they couldn't give an interpretation at all. And now Daniel hears the dream, and Daniel's heart is troubled. And, and, and as we read on, it's as if the, the king wasn't shocked that Daniel was troubled by this. And it's as if we see from the get-go that everyone involved in hearing this dream knew, at the very least, this is a negative message, not a positive one. But as we go on, we also see here that Daniel is truly grieving over what he's about to have to reveal. Here's a man, don't, let, let's not forget what the situation Daniel truly is in. No doubt he's been elevated to a high position in Babylon. We understand that. He probably has it okay as far as living is concerned. And he, he, I'm sure he's not like in a dungeon living. He's, he's, got, he's got some power in Babylon. But he's still a slave. He's still away from home. He's still under the authority and the oppression of an evil Gentile king. This is not Daniel's first choice of life. This is not his career path. This was not on Daniel's 10-year plan, okay? And so we must remember that as da where Daniel sits, he's a slave. He's oppressed in Babylon, and he's hearing some bad news for the very man that is oppressing him, and he's still grieving for that man. Let's not miss the heart and the care that Daniel had. And often, Let's be honest, this was the heart of every prophet of the Old Testament, after all, as well. Because many a times, the prophets in the Old Testament were having to deliver a negative message to those they were delivering it to. Even if it was their own people that they were delivering this message to, they were still delivering a negative message, a message many a times that meant that God was going to pour down judgment, and each and every one of them was found weeping over the message they had to be able to de deliver. And this is the case for Daniel. He's heartbroken for this king. And, and we, find they, we find here that the king, though, goes on to reassure Daniel that it's okay to reveal the bad news to him. Uh, at the very end, uh, 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 in the middle there of, uh, of, chapter, of verse number 19, it said, And said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. That's Nebuchadnezzar responding to him. He says, All right. I can see it already. It's bad news. Don't come at me with, you want the good news or bad news first. Just go ahead, lay it on me. What's the diagnosis, doc? And he encourages Daniel to just go ahead and get it out there. Tell us what's going on. And with that reassurance, of course, Daniel then does, and he has the courage to move ahead and to reveal what's going on. But not before he commiserates with the king over what is about to, he's about to reveal. So no doubt we see this in the, the interpretation that he's about to give has an edge to it. But it, notice that 
it involves the king's inevitable experience. Verses 20 through 26, read with me. The tree that thou sawest, which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heavens, and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls, and, uh, fowls of the heaven uh, had their habitation. It is thou, O king, uh, that art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reacheth unto heaven, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. And whereas the king saw a watcher and a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, hew the tree down and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field till seven times pass over him. Verse number 24, this is the interpretation, O king, uh, and this is the decree of the most high, which is come upon my lord the king that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they, uh, shall, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whom, whomsoever he will. Verse number 26. And whereas they commanded, to leave, uh, they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee after that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule we find here that daniel tells the king what he and probably everyone else who had already heard the, the dream had an idea of what at least it represented he tells them straightforward without beating around the bush without uh without skirting it at all he says uh the tree represents you king it represents you you're the one who rule over all the earth and as it grew in great splendor and it kind of was able to be seen and and gave shade and gave provision for the entire world that is you you are this tree and you have grown and uh, just like the head of gold in the statue of chapter number two the tree emphasizes complete and total rule that nebuchadnezzar uh, exercised over the earth Remember how we said back in chapter number two that this rule that the Lord had given to Nebuchadnezzar meant that he was in charge of the entire world at that time? We, of course, he never stepped foot on the Americas at that time. Uh, but nevertheless, had he stepped foot here, he would have had complete reign and rule here as well. All I'm saying is God's saying, you're in control of everything. And I have given you the power of such. And therefore, just like that of the head of, the, of gold in that statue, he's saying this tre tree represents great splendor, great majesty, complete strength. And each detail in the dream reinforces this description as well. Notice that he speaks about some birds nesting in the branches. Uh, this, of course, would be speaking of uh, a, a pic the picture of, a, of the Gentile population. Now, we find this is, a, is an example that Jesus himself even used in, uh, in Matthew chapter 13 and verse number 32. There he's speaking about the mustard seed and how though it's small, that when it's planted, a, bush, a, a tree will grow up, and therefore the birds or the fowls of the air will find, uh, find their nesting place in it. He was referencing the fact of people, particularly Gentile population, being accepted into the church. And uh, we, of course, on Sunday mornings, studying through the book of Romans, understand how Paul lays that out. There, we're going to go back to Romans even tonight some uh, and uh, revisit that this evening as well. But we understand that that's what is being spoken of here, and Gentile population and having its rest and having its provision uh, from someone other than its own. Although Nebuchadnezzar is a Gentile and he's in control, where is his power coming from, church? From God. And so therefore it's coming, their provision is actually coming from elsewhere. We find also that the beast feeding in the fields represents the provision that the king's empire makes to all of its subjects. This place, the, 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 uh, Babylon, was, was, was not some itty-bitty, minute uh, town with only a post office and one-stop sign in it. I mean, this place was magnificent. The hanging gardens of Babylon even were uh, the seven wonders of the world. And, and we understand how great and powerful and magnificent and all of the people of Babylon were provided for during this time they weren't they didn't experience times of drought they didn't experience times of famine they didn't experience times where they were wanting they they, they had provision under his rule 
Then the shade of this, of this tree represents the power of the kingdom to protect and to defend its citizens, enforcing a time of peace. Let me just state it this way. When you're a kingdom as powerful as Babylon was, you didn't have to worry about smaller nations trying to come and fight you very often. We're going to find later on in God's timing, there is a nation that comes and overthrows Babylon. But that was not the norm. That was kind of like the uh, exception to the rule, if you may. And so all of these things, all of the, uh, these items, these details that speak about this tree even enforce the fact that this tree was mighty and magnificent and had great strength. So the, king, the tree, I'm sorry, pictures the king, and as the king himself represents the entire uh, kingdom of Babylon. Then Daniel goes on and he moves to speak about the angelic uh, woodcutter, if you may, that comes down. And he says that this woodcutter cuts down the tree. But notice that as the tree was cut down, that the stump was not removed. Now this is important. Because he even says that its roots were there, that the, the ground would be wetted, and, and that meaning that there would be opportunity for growth again. And of course, we understand that that's ultimately going to be the case. Uh, we come back and we'll, we'll get to it that, that, uh, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be reinstated into his place. But we find here that, uh, that he, it's left in the ground, giving the potential to sprout again. And notice verse number 26 with me. It says in verse number 26, And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee, after that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. See, the Lord, the Lord intended, uh, if the Lord had intended to end Nebuchadnezzar's reign, then the, in the dream, the stump would have been completely uprooted. It would have meant, meant that he would have been completely taken out and obliterated. But the fact that it remained meant that God was not through with him yet. We find that this symbol, this speaking of a stump that still has its roots and has the opportunity for growth or for it to be reinstated or reestablished is a powerful illustration and if you're noticing something that kind of sounds familiar, it's because just a couple weeks ago, we spoke about a stump and some roots and some grafting on Sunday mornings out of Romans chapter number 11. And if you want to turn there, go to Romans chapter number 11, verses 17 and 18. Let me remind you what we studied there. In Romans 11, verse 17, it says, And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and the fat and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. See, the root, is, the root here that Paul is, is speaking of is, is what remains of Israel after they've been cut off of, for their unbelief. And I'm not going to belabor the point. We spoke about that a couple of Sunday mornings back. But the fact that the root remains mean that, means that God was not done with Israel. And we understand that we've studied that. And we understand that they will be uh, given a great opportunity again from the Lord to do his mighty and, and powerful work. And in fact, Israel will one day rise again in that same chapter, verses 23 through 25 of Romans chapter 11. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is, by, is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to the nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest yet ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So just as the tree root there speaks of Israel being reestablished, being able to be reused again, this root or this stump here in Daniel chapter number 4 is indicating that Nebuchadnezzar is not finished with. God is still going to use him. He's going to bring him back. He's going to give him, have usefulness for him again. But that's only going to come after a time of trying. Notice also, though, that as that stump is left there, the Bible tells us that this stump is bound by bands of, of, of iron and bands of brass. Now, the symbol of these bands suggests, su suggests captivity or subjection. 
They suggest to show that God has shown his might and his power in this man's life. This man that he had given 100% control, this man who had given ultimate power in the world, it is suggesting that God is saying, let me show you that although I've given you all power in, world, in the world, I'm still ultimately in control and show you that I'm still in control of you. The metals, uh, the metals of brass and iron actually suggest uh, a judgment that will come. The Lord's judgment is often uh, pictured as brass uh, in a furnace. And so that's what that is picturing there. Uh, iron is a picture of ruling power as if a rod of iron, right? And so we find here that both of these, the meaning is clear. That the king will be taken out of power by judgment from God himself. But yet he is not being disposed of. He is not being forgotten. He is only going to be set to the side for a period of time. Now, that period of time, the Bible says, is a period of sevens. Now, we haven't gotten the information yet that tells us exactly what those sevens mean. I said last week, I believe that that period of sevens equals seven years. We'll talk more about that next week and give reason for that. But with that in mind, remember uh, that during this time, these sevens, he will endure a particular, uh, particularly humiliating set of circumstances. Notice verse number 25 with me. It tells us that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. So we find here in verse number 25 that we get the details of what God has planned uh, for this king. What's going what's to happen? First off, we find that the Bible says that the king will be driven away from mankind. Now consider, go back to chapter 4 and verse number 1 with me. Um, verse number 1, it tells us, Nebuchadnezzar, the king unto all the people, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. He's talking about how, his, how much reach he has, how much influence he has. Then, if you would, um, go down to verse number 30. We've not made it there yet in our studies. We'll make it there next week, but just for a, a sneak peek, look at verse number 30. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have, that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? And then in the very next verse says, While the word was yet in his ma- the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying. And we find here this, that, the, that Daniel is saying to, to Nebuchadnezzar, here is what ultimately is going to happen. You are going to be driven away from mankind. Here's a man who's just boasted about his influence. Here's a man who has just boasted about his reach. I mean, he would put our president to shame on speaking about how, how much influence and reach and how awesome he is, all right? He'd have all the hand gestures down and everything. But we find this, that, that Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, if, he were, if, if it were today, if social media was a thing back in those days, he would have toted of be, saying that I have the most followers on Twitter, I have the most friends on Facebook, I have the most reach, I've got the most uh, uh, influence. If I were to pick up the phone and make a phone call, all these businesses, they'd give me a loan with, with no problem. Y'all didn't watch the debates, I guess. But nevertheless, uh, we find here, he would, be, he, would be toad, he would be tooting his horn. He would be a man that is saying, look at how powerful and how great I am. And then we even read that he says, listen, I'm taking it all in. I'm standing out here and I'm looking at all of Babylon and how great it is, how majestic it is. And this is what I have made for myself. This is what I've made for my majesty. And Daniel says, here's what is going to be the punishment. Here's the judgment. You're going to be driven away from that influence. You're going to lose all that power. You're going to lose all that reach that you claim to have. You're going to, all of that, the, the impressive things that you speak about, about yourself, you're going to lose it all. In fact, all of those things that you 
feel that you have as like a lush, lavish lifestyle, those are all gone as well. Because notice here that this is not something that he made of his own desires, but something that is driven away from him. Notice verse number 25, that they shall drive thee from men. This isn't something that he has a change of heart in, by the way. It isn't like he came to himself and says, man, I've been a very mean, arrogant, prideful individual. I'm changing all of this. This is something that has been stripped away, driven away from him. What drives the king to do such things as to, to go out and then leave the dwelling of mankind and to dwell with the beast and such? Well, we'll go back to verse number 16. Verse number 16, as we learned last week, it says, Let his heart be changed from a man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times pass over him. So simply put, Nebuchadnezzar would start thinking like, and because, of he's, because he's thinking like it, ultimately begin acting like a wild beast. Now, instead of acting like a human, instead of thinking like a human, he's acting like a beast and thinking like a beast. We don't know to what extent these behaviors look like. We don't know to what extent he specifically acted like an animal. But the description that is given indicates that this behavior, uh, he must have lived like some type of a wild man in the field, definitely without shelter. Possibly he was out scurrying and hunting maybe uh, for his, uh, and attacking uh, other animals like uh, animals would attack and other animals and such even today and uh, much like a lion ro roaming around we would today we would describe this type of behavior as insanity we would say he just lost his mind he's gone insane and certainly it must have appeared that way in that day as well perhaps the way that the Lord caused this to happen, perhaps the way that the Lord gave this man, Nebuchadnezzar, the mind of an animal, which caused him to act like an animal, was by the Lord allowing this man to be possessed by a demon. That's a possibility. After all, we, it would not be a, a surprise if being demon-possessed uh, caused this because we read about something similar in the book of Luke. Luke chapter number 8, if you want to take your Bibles there and read along with me. Luke chapter 8, verse number 27, it says, and, and when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man which had devils long time. And it says this about him. He wore no clothes, neither abode in any house, but in the tombs. In verse number 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and with a loud voice said, what have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of God, uh, most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. For he had commanded the unclean spirits to come out of the man, for oftentimes it had caught him. And he was kept bound with chains and in fetters and break the bands and was driven of the devil into the where? The wilderness. So we find this man that was possessed by demons was running around, living in the wilderness, living in the tombs, hurting himself, uh, acting like a, a crazy lunatic man. And we find the reason for that was because he was demon possessed. So perhaps the Lord had allowed a demon to be brought on to Nebuchadnezzar, or perhaps the Lord just did literally what he said. He just gave him the mind of an animal that caused him to act like an animal. The Lord supernaturally changed this man's thought process, his wiring, his makeup, uh, so that he would act and think like an animal. In either case, we need to give a, a, a thought, at least for a moment, as to what it means that God can do to an individual. You know the verse that says the, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? Now, I'm not pr promoting tonight that we ought to stand fearful and trembling and, and afraid of our God because I'm thankful this evening that Hebrews is in the Word of God and it says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. But we ought to have a reverence for who He is. Amen. I was watching something recently and it was, it was a made-up television show, but this man was praying and he was praying to God, of course, and he was telling God, you better do this. To have that type of an attitude, how audacious that is. 
How crazy to think that we would be able to come to that type of a mindset to say, God, you better listen to me. Because here, right here, we no doubt, regardless of what took place, we understand that this man, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, the most mightiest man in the entire world, was given the mind of a beast that made him act like a wild, crazy lunatic. And it was all because the Lord allowed it. Whether he allowed a demon to possess him or whether the Lord specifically himself gave him and rewired this man for this period of seven years, it doesn't matter. We know that it was of the Lord's will and of his doing. The secular world, of course, gives no allowance for the possibility uh, that bizarre behavior is the result of maybe some supernatural cause. Clinically, what Nebuchadnezzar was experiencing is called today zoanthropy. So there's even an actual diagnosis for someone who acts the way that Nebuchadnezzar does today. And you know why they have that type of a diagnosis? Because they want to be able to find some way, some answer as to why it's happening. Because they, don't, they want to rule out that God had anything to do with it. But my friend, although we should not draw broad conclusions from one example, we should be more thoughtful about where abnormal and pathological behavior originates. I'm not, a, a, I'm not getting into all kinds of crazy sci-fi things tonight or anything like that, but do we ever take a thought as to how things like this originate? Is it caused by natural causes? Is it environmental effects? Is it uh, genetics? Or is it a decision from God to bring some type of a trial or test to make a point? Nebuchadnezzar's strange behavior, behavior resulted in the king uh, abdicating his throne for a time, specifically a, t a time of seven, as we said. It could have meant seven hours. It could have meant seven days. It could have meant seven weeks or seven months. The text does not specifically state, but later I believe we will learn that the, it does speak up to seven years. And we'll talk about that again, as I said, next week. But notice with me, not only have we seen here tonight that the terrible hereafter, the, this interpretation had an, e an edge. It was an inevitable experience for this king that, he was going to take, that was going to take place. But notice Daniel's incredible encouragement in verse number 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. See, knowing that the Lord has declared all these things to come, and has declared that these things will happen to the king, Daniel exhorts the king to do something to maybe make it stop. He exhorts the king to do some things to hopefully stay off this judgment that's going to come. And specifically, Daniel says this there in verse number 27. He says, forego sinning, repent, and do works of mercy unto the poor. It would seem that this uh, king had not been particularly kind to the poor. Here's a man who's living a lavish, luxurious lifestyle and uh, not taking care of those who were necessarily the neediest uh, in his kingdom. And in, gen in general, it doesn't seem that Daniel considers the king to be particularly an upright man. Because he says, here's what you need to do. You need to quit, to quit the sin that you're doing. You need to bring mercy upon the poor. So here's the question. Can we assume that this, this uh, call for mercy or this call to repentance, can we assume that it is something that had been directed from God for Daniel to say specifically to him? Or maybe Daniel was just uh, making his own point of view. Uh, in this case, we might assume that Nebuchadnezzar's plight was inevitable, though. Because after all, we know the rest of the story. And we know why this is taking place. It's all part of God's gr grander plan. It's all part of his, his grand scheme, if you may. And so if it is inevitable for the king to, to, to escape, if, if it's inevitable that the king is going to experience these, these horrible situations, why would Daniel even seemingly give him a way out? Why would Daniel even seemingly give him a, a way of maybe not experiencing these things? But although it was inevitable that the judgment was going to come, we should not assume that no opportunity of grace existed. 
Because if there's, if there's a theme that runs through the entire word of God, it is the theme of grace. Amen. Over and over again, I, and we don't have time to go through all of them, but think with me how God gave Cain even an opportunity for grace in Genesis 4. Jonah declared grace to Nineveh that as they were going to be destroyed. And he said, hey, if you'll just turn, and if you'll turn to the Lord, you'll experience his grace. The prophets declared it to their own people of Israel. Israel didn't deserve God's goodness. Israel had turned their back on God time after time after time again. And yet God still gave grace. An example of that is found in Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 29 through 32. Read with me there. It says, yet saith the house of Israel, the way of the Lord is not equal. O house of Israel, are not my ways equal? Are not your ways unequal? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, saith the Lord God. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall, be, shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. See, we find here that the offer to repent and the offer to receive grace is there, no doubt. But this principle of repentance has a corollary. As, a re as repentance delays, judgment advances. As, repentant, as, as repentance delays, judgment advances. So at some point, judgment is assured and the time of repentance Repentance has come and it has gone. We find the good example of this in Psalms. In Psalm 7, verses 11 through 16, it says, God judges the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will wet his sword and hath bent his bow and made it ready. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordained his arrows against the persecutors. Behold, he travaileth with iniquity uh, and hath conceived mischief and brought forth falsehood. He made a pit and digged it and it is and is fallen into the ditch which he made. His mis mischief shall return upon his own head and his violent de dealing shall come down upon his own, uh, own pate. The psalmist says this in essence, the unrepentant sinner just simply falls into a hole that they've, dug, that they've dug for themselves. So while the Lord offers an opportunity for grace and a period for repentance, every day or every moment that we do not turn to the Lord in repentance, God's judgment advances ever so much closer. And that, that is to say this, that if we experience the judgment of God, it is no one's fault but our own. For the Lord has given us that opportunity the Bible says that the, the, the decision of the unrepentant one has returned upon his own head. By not repenting, they are choosing the judgment that comes with unrepentance. These truths do not deny God's mercy, nor do they contradict the grace that God extends to every believer so that our sins aren't counted against us in eternity. We're simply learning that whatever mercy God may be prepared to extend to us, His mercy depends upon a timely repentance. It looks like this for the person living today. From the moment that a person takes their first breath and is born into this world, they have an opportunity, every breath that they have, to turn to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Every breath they take is another opportunity for them to turn to Jesus Christ as their Savior. But if they hear the gospel and they, they choose not to accept the gospel message and they reject Jesus Christ for who He is, the Savior of all mankind, and day by day goes on, every day they live longer, they, they grow closer to their death date. And once death has arrived, the, the grace and mercy of God that has been extended, if you may the fuse has ran out. And what we must understand tonight is God, even in this time, is still extending grace and mercy to the one who desperately needs it. Just another, another quick sneak peek. Go down to uh, verse number uh, 29. We're going to jump into this next week. 
But we've read how Nebuchadnezzar praises the Lord. He starts off by praising the Lord for the events that are about to come. We've read about these events and we're thinking, why would he praise the Lord for that? But he's had the dream. He's told Daniel the dream. Daniel's gave the interpretation of the dream and, what's, and told him what's going to happen. And now read verse number 29 with me. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the king of Babylon. The king spake and said, is not this great Babylon that is built by my might and power for honor for my majesty? How long, took, how long went by from the time that Daniel told the king this is what's going to happen? But you know what? If you, might, if you stop your sinning, if you'll start doing mercy acts to the poor, God might be merciful on you. How long went by before the acts actually took place? Say it out loud, church. The one year, 12 months. He had a whole entire year to get right. And he didn't. Because the next verse shows how prideful he still is. As he boasts about his great city. As he boasts about his mighty kingdom. As he boasts about how it was accomplished by his power. Oh, how quickly had he forgot that it was God that had given him the power. How he boasted that it was built for his own majesty. How quickly had he forgotten that all majesty and power and glory and honor is deserved for God alone. And because he didn't repent, the, the judgment of God was cast down, no doubt. So perhaps Daniel's declaration to Nebuchadnezzar was an offer of mercy from the Lord, which gave Nebuchadnezzar opportunity for a time, yes. But if so, the king did not make use of that opportunity. He squandered it. Can I ask tonight, what opportunity has the Lord extended to us that we are not seizing, that we are squandering? As we'll move into the finishing of this message next week, and we'll see how the Lord humbles Nebuchadnezzar, consider this last takeaway tonight. It is good when God exposes our sin and calls us to righteousness. It's good. When we, have, when we come face to face where, with where we are standing in contradiction to His Word. Sometimes it's when we open up His Word in the morning as we're having our devotions. Or if it's in the afternoon or in the evening. At whatever time we might open up His Word and we're studying His Word. And the Holy Spirit speaks to our heart and says, You see what you just read there? You're living contrary to what God would have you to live. Sometimes it's the Word of God that does it. Sometimes it's a close friend that comes along and confronts you to the face like Paul did to Peter or like Nathan did to uh, David and said, thou art the man. Sometimes it's the preacher that stands up like the prophets of old and like the preachers of the New Testament and say, says, thus saith the Lord. But it is good. It is good when God exposes our sin and calls us to righteousness through repentance. That was the opportunity extended to Nebuchadnezzar. My friend, if he's going to extend that opportunity to a wicked pagan king, how much the more would he extend it to his own children? But what, will we learn the hard way, like Nebuchadnezzar? Or will we learn from him learning the hard way that God is God and we are not? Our Father, we thank you for this evening. And we're looking forward to the conclusion of this message, of course, next week, Lord. I ask now that you'd help us, though, to take away tonight this truth that you are God and we are not. And, and it's good when, when you allow us to be able to come face to face with where we have wronged you, our sin, our, the exceeding sinfulness of our sin. And, that know, and to know that you've called us to repentance, to righteousness. And Lord, I ask now that you'd help us to take heed of this message tonight that we might live it for you when we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a prayer request card that has not yet been turned in, hold it up high real quick, and Brother uh, Wilhelm will grab it as he makes his way up. There's one over here, it looks like, Brother Wilhelm, and uh, we'll get those quickly tonight. And, of course, I want to encourage you to, uh, to fill those out if you have a request. And, of course, uh, make sure that you're praying for them as well. I'm going to hop on to Facebook and YouTube where our services are being uh, streamed there as well and see if there's anybody that might have left any, uh, any requests on either of those quickly tonight. And so just bear with me real quick here as I look for those this evening.
see anything on Facebook. Let me switch over to YouTube real quick and see if I can get that up quickly, see if there's any requests there. As that's uh, going, uh, boot, booting up there, let me go ahead and read one of these here. Brother Robert is asking uh, prayer uh, for our missionaries that we support, the Kim family, and uh, for the safe delivery of their fifth child due on March the 2nd, two, 2021. It'll be a, 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 a boy, and so be in prayer for that. Also be in prayer for them for a bigger place to stay. And uh, so be in prayer for the Kim family, excited for them. They, of course, were part of the uh, group that I was able to uh, be with over in Myanmar at the beginning of this year when I went on that missions trip then. Uh, Miss Tana is asking prayer tonight also. Uh, for her. She's lost her house keys, and uh, so pray in prayer that she can find them. Uh, I don't believe there's been any turned in here, not that I know of, but if anybody found any Sunday, uh, they're probably hers. So make sure to check with her and see if, there's, if they're hers, but be in prayer that she'll be able to find them. Uh, be in prayer for uh, Rachel Crosby, which was Miss, is Miss Rhonda Crosby's daughter. She's having uh, severe stomach pains, and so be in prayer for them tonight. Uh, Miss Mona is praising the Lord tonight. Uh, Jerry saw the uh, surgeon Monday, uh, received a steroid shot in his back. And uh, praise God that his back pains are, uh, are alleviated. And so praising the Lord for that, praying that that helps for quite a while. Then be, uh, Matt is pr pr praying for, is this a friend of yours? Yes. Okay, a uh, friend Ben. Uh, he believes he needs to be saved and praying for his salvation. So remember Ben uh, tonight for salvation. And uh, there's not any requests that I see online anyway, and so I want to encourage you to find yourself a prayer partner if you'd like, and to go to the Lord in prayer. You're, for, you're welcome to pray for as long as, or for as little as you'd like, uh, but as you are praying, as you, and when you're finished, when you slip out, just be uh, re remembering that there might be still some in here praying, so be courteous to them, uh, not to disturb them as they're finishing up. But whenever you are finished praying, you're welcome to be dismissed, and I uh, would encourage you, of course, to fellowship and to interact with one another. Just remember, there is still discipleship taking place down the hall. Our children's classes are just finishing up as well. But let's go to the Lord in prayer tonight, and we'll be dismissed after everything is said and done this evening. Thank you again so much for being here this evening, and I hope that you'll make plans to be here next week as we conclude this message and conclude chapter number four in the book of Daniel. But let's go to the Lord in prayer this evening.